electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Friday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Carl Quintanilla and Deidre Bosa. Big, big hour ahead here on Tech Check on earnings. We've got the CEOs of both DoorDash and SoFi in first on CNBC interviews. Plus, Reddit now has a valuation north of $10 billion. And CEO Steve Huffman is coming up this hour to talk social media and Wall Street bets. We are also talking Disney and some Airbnb as a very strong quarter gets overshadowed by doubts over Delta at Airbnb anyway. You see the stock down there, two and a third percent. And you'll meet the family who sold off everything they owned to get into Bitcoin back when it was at $900. Carl? I love a good trade. We'll talk about that, John. We're going to start, though, with uh, three stocks that all saw huge pandemic tailwinds. First, of course, is Disney, blowing past estimates on all fronts for the quarter as its parks, experiences, and product segment returns to profitability for the first time since the pandemic began. Disney Plus, another bright spot, coming in 116 million subs. If you're trying to do the math in your head, that's more than 12 million additions for the quarter. And when including ESPN and Hulu, revenue for their DTC segments was up a whopping 50 57%. Disney clearly expecting further gains for the streaming service, forecasting between 230 and 260 million Disney Plus subs by 2024. But the biggest question that remains continues to be the pandemic's impact on the parks, a key revenue driver for the company. And it's one reason, guys, why Goldman went to 218 this morning, Morgan Stanley at 210. D, the title of their report is Back on Space Mountain. And they say while the COVID variant is a near-term risk, that strong U.S. consumer is expected to last into 2022. Good old Space Mountain. You think they might update that? Um, it is. It is a big question going forward on the Disney Plus front, which is still such a huge part of this story as well. There's so much excitement around uh, direct to consumer, but I liked an analyst question on the call last night. He made a good point, saying that streaming is still an industry, John, that is earning just one fifth of the average revenue per user that traditional TV did. And a lot of the subs that Disney added in terms of its plus product were in India, which does have that lower revenue per user. So that will affect profitability going forward and does raise some questions, regardless of all the excitement around the success of DDC. Right. But it seems a strategic value here is also in the data and the direct relationship with the consumer. Disney, as we mentioned, Mm -hmm. having so many components to the business, including parks. If you know what customers want in different regions, what they're interested in, how their tastes are shifting, how does that affect the way you market other aspects of the business? Carl, and the, the thread that I see going through so many of these earnings reports today is once you separate out valuations overall, once you separate industries and look at companies and whether the mechanics of the companies are working at Disney. Clearly, they seem to be DoorDash and Airbnb as well. And they're confident enough, despite the Delta variant, Carl, to make uh, some projections and investments from here because of that. 
Yep, I saw you tweet about that earlier this morning, John. And of course, as it goes to the theatrical window, uh, Disney appears to be coming into line with Viacom's early view that 45 days is pretty magic, along with the overall pricing picture of just what consumers are going to want to pay when it comes to streaming. And Chapek did address that last night. Ignore the consumer at your own perils, what I like to say, because we understand that the world is changing and we want to continue to evolve and be on the front end of that wave. And of course, uh, John, every additional sub is going to give them a little bit more incremental data on where that pricing picture eventually needs to go. Yeah, uh, that is important for so many companies, including Airbnb. Let's talk about that. It is moving. We had mentioned uh, before that it was down uh, about 2%. It's come up uh, a little bit. Revenue coming in at $1.3 billion, up nearly 4x. You heard that right, year over year. And that's a big rebound after the travel industry collapsed a year ago in the pandemic. Airbnb's experience business also up triple digits, nearly 3x year over year, with more than 83 million nights and experiences booked. And all in all, losses narrowed to $68 million for the quarter. So why is the stock down? Well, Delta variant, a big part of that. The raw number of nights and experiences booked still not going to eclipse 2019 in the immediate term. Airbnb warning it's bracing for some volatility because of that variant and sees travel behavior being impacted in the near term. D, uh, you, you cover Airbnb Closely, this is another one where you look at what they've been able to accomplish, kind of roaring back after they felt the need to cut back before. It seems like this marketing investment that they're making suggests that they can put their foot on the gas, get good hosts and be ready for the future. Right. Both Airbnb and DoorDash achieving that elusive adjusted EBITDA profitability that has been less attainable for other gig economy companies like Uber and Lyft. But, you know, it was really a sign of the times. Uh, Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, calling in from his Airbnb in Italy and talking about how he is seeing that recovery in Europe and sustained recovery in North America. And even though they're cautious on the Delta variant and they're seeing more cancellations in the current quarter, which we're already halfway through, they still expect record revenue. So when we talk about, you know, three times uh, revenue from last year. They're also surpassing revenue from 2019. And Carl, I remember this is a company at the start of the pandemic that we talked about was going to be hit really hard. They had to raise money at, I believe, a $16 billion valuation. Where it's trading today is not that far from where it opened on its IPO day, $146, which was, you know, blew away all estimates. And of course, it's IPO price. So I think that this is sort of these companies, both Airbnb and DoorDash, are valued so much higher in terms of their ratios to other players in their industry. I think that this is there's still a lot of confidence in terms of yeah, I, markets and investors. Yeah, it's easy to confuse both of them with sort of a, a pure reopening play. Consumers looking for ways to either get food or go on vacation in different ways post-COVID. But your point is exactly right, D. 300 uh, percent growth uh, in terms of their gross booking value year on year. But on that two-year stack, you're up almost 40 percent. So uh, very strong structural growth stories behind that. Yeah, which I don't think anyone could have predicted a year and a half ago. I Meanwhile, we have also been talking about DoorDash. This is another company, as I mentioned, um, that has been seeing pandemic impacts. Its quarterly loss of 30 cents per share, that was wider than expected, despite revenue coming in above the tape. Gross order volume was up 70 percent compared to last year, although that was down sequentially from the more than 200 percent growth that we did see 
in the first quarter. The company also saw growth in its DashPass subscribers alongside a record number of first-time delivery drivers. The company, though, warning investors of possible trouble ahead, saying at the end of that earnings report, quote, the problems to be solved will get more difficult. Coordination between stakeholders, more complex and competitive threats will increase. By the way, CEO Tony Hsu will be joining us later this hour, live from right here at One Market to break things down. And John, I know that you, you've looked into and talked a lot about DashPass and that recurring revenue that's been important. And, you know, this quarter continues to set DoorDash apart from its competition, like Airbnb. And I'm pointing specifically to an Uber Eats, an Uber, which lost, what, nearly half a billion dollars in terms of adjusted EBITDA. So that's its core business. A lot of that has to do with Eats. And there's a lot of levers that Tony Hsu is pushing on. And a lot of that has to do with non-restaurant delivery, which is what I'm looking forward to talking to him about. He's really creating this logistics juggernaut here. And that's always been the vision. My question is whether DoorDash can create that separation over the next year the next 18 months to sort of prove that its model works, that its model is better, that its data is better. I was just looking back at the Fort Knox interview that I did with Tony back in March of 2018, and the vision is consistent. What he has said, Carl, he has consistently said about the way DoorDash operates to give small businesses, starting with restaurants, options and to really push into that model about being smarter about what they need. And, and now we're going to see uh, if this valuation is deserved. Uh, yep. Also interesting to hear them talk about Q3 seasonality. That's a big part of their uh, guidance, John. Uh, but as you pointed out earlier this morning, uh, their confidence, even with that seasonal uh, softness, uh, re re will relate into well, a bit more investment. And that is a big sign of confidence. Well, let's continue with the earnings parade. Another stock with a big sales beat, but outlook weighing on it. Shares of SoFi sinking hard this morning. Now down, let's look at the chart, uh, a little over 13%. It's got a strong membership growth story, double year over year, but uh, it is weaker than expected when it comes to the forecast, and that's troubling some investors. Uh, here with us first on CNBC, SoFi CEO Anthony Noto. A Anthony, thanks for being with us. So the numbers overall look good. Tell us what you see into the future and how predictable the business is for you at this stage of the pandemic. John, thanks for having me, and I appreciate the chance to share with you our results. Our, our strategy and execution are driving record results, as you alluded to. Uh, we delivered $237 million of revenue, which was a year-over-year growth of 74%, and our fourth consecutive quarter of positive EBITDA at $11 million. And that's driven by really strong growth in our member base, which grew faster for the eighth consecutive quarter on a year-over-year basis at 113%, as well as our product growth, which shows positive signs of, of cross-buying, which is a key element to our strategy, with that growth growing over 100% as well for the fourth consecutive quarter. Uh, and then importantly, our outlook, we are guiding to another record quarter in Q3, up from the $237 million. You know, I think investors wanted us to increase the full-year guidance. We've been guiding um, revenue to $980 million since uh, January when we went through the um, public process. Uh, we've now beat the first and second quarter quarter by a total of $42 million. Um, but we haven't raised the $980 million, not because our outlook's not in incredibly positive and we have strong momentum in our business. It's because of the fact that the, the government decided to extend the moratorium on student loan payments until 2022, 
We originally anticipated that ending on September 30th, which was their prior deadline. Uh, that takes about $40 million of student loan refinancing out of the back half of the year. Uh, and that's the reason why we didn't raise estimates above the 980. But we are seeing great overall trends, as I mentioned, 74% year of year growth in revenue, over 100% growth in our member base, which is a leading indicator for uh, future growth. And Galileo, uh, how, our technology platform. Yeah. Galileo, uh, our technology th- there was a, uh, is also strong growth. Yeah, and I understand that there was an accounting uh, change there that also affected the, the numbers somewhat. But tell me how you feel about overall consumer debt and the health of the consumer, your ability to gauge creditworthiness there. Is that shifting at all? Is that stabilizing or, or not? Yeah, with the team was doing a great job on the credit side of the equation. We have four different lending businesses. Um, two of those businesses benefit really well in the low interest rate environment and to benefit in a high interest rate environment. And we saw a significant acceleration uh, in our personal loan business, um, which drove tremendous growth as as uh, individuals are looking to refinance out of variable rate debt into fixed rate debt. Our, our um, term loan debt, which is unsecured for personal loans, had a great quarter. We're still seeing you know strong underlying trends uh, as it relates to the demand for our non-lending products. We had a uh, inflection point in our financial services business, which is SoFi Money, uh, SoFi Invest, and SoFi Credit Card. Uh, the revenue there increased two and a half x sequentially, and is really starting to drive great monetization. And we now have about 2.7 million members in that segment, which is not tied mm-hmm. to the credit cycle. Um, but our credit performance is really strong. We're seeing really good trends on 90-day uh, delinquencies continue to be very stable. Anthony, good morning. It's Deirdre. You did mention that user growth, which I know doubled the past quarter to 2.6 million. But, you know, everyone in fintech is trying to expand their offerings. You guys included become a one-stop shop. And the user numbers are really important here so that you can upsell or cross-sell. When I look across the landscape, I see Square with more than 30 million users, Venmo, 40 million a few years ago, Robinhood, 18 million. Are you comfortable where SoFi is in terms of its user numbers? Do you need to be growing them faster? Uh, we are growing them, you know, 113%, which is the eighth quarter of faster year-over-year growth. And all members are not created equal. The lifetime value of our members is meaningfully higher than all the companies that you mentioned because we are a one-stop shop. And so if you're just in a checking or savings account or payment app, um, the lifetime value there is okay, but it's $100 to $200 over the lifetime of that member. When we extend someone a loan, we're making between $800 in variable profit to $3,000 in variable profit. So each one of our members is worth meaningfully more for two reasons. One, we're selling them multiple products, and two, each one of those products inherently has a higher lifetime value and higher unit economics than just a a simple payment app. And so uh, at 2.7 million, uh, we're really happy with the growth rate and the trajectory, and we continue to see really strong underlying trends. We're the only place you can go to borrow, save, spend, invest, and protect on one platform. No one else has that value proposition, and it's working. We saw an increase of cross-bought products of 1.7x versus a year ago, which is a tremendous economic benefit and a testament to the value of our products. Right. And to that point, Anthony, I know that you guys are in investment or growth mode. It seems like this past quarter, uh, investors latched on to your outlook, um, which may not be as profitable as some had hoped. And I just wonder, you guys just went public uh, earlier this year. Public market's not as forgiving, at least from what we're seeing from SoFi in terms of growth versus profitability picture. Do you have to change your messaging? Do you think um, that it's easier? It might have been easier to stay private. 
No, being a public company is exactly where we need to be and we want to be as a company. The process of going public is one that goes through a digestion period when investors are learning more about the business in greater detail because there's more disclosure in it. It takes a while to educate them. Our goal is to maximize our value for the shareholder. We'd love for our stock to be up after every quarter. Um, but the underlying trends in our business couldn't, you know, couldn't be more in line with what we thought and quite frankly, exceeding in expectations or we wouldn't have been able to maintain our outlook despite the student loan refinancing being pushed off till next year in terms of the moratorium. Uh, in terms of the you know, profitability of the company, we want to compound growth over decades. So for every $100 we drive in incremental revenue, we'll drop 30% to the bottom line and reinvest the other 70% so we can grow for years because the market opportunity in front of us is, is so big. And so we've been profitable for the last four quarters on, a, on an EBITDA basis, and we'll continue to, to drive that um, on, a, on an annual basis. All right. Anthony Noto, CEO of SoFi. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. As we said earlier, DoorDash CEO Tony Hsu's coming up. Plus, Reddit has become the new message board for stock trading in the last year with the growth of Wall Street bets. CEO Steve Huffman will join us later on this hour as Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Let's check in on some street calls this morning. City upgrades Activision Blizzard today uh, to buy, views the recent weakness in the stock as a buying opportunity, says concerns around the work environment and regulation in China are pretty much priced in. Shares, uh, as you can see, down about 1%, uh, just about hit, did hit a two-week high earlier this morning. Meantime, Evercore ISI adds AMAT to its top pick list, says the recent pullback in DRAM creates an attractive entry point for that stock. Shares up about uh, three-tenths just off of a three-week low, John. Wow. Yeah. And up next, the CEO of DoorDash. Plus, we're going to get an update on the family liquidated all of their assets and put everything into Bitcoin way back when it was at $900. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This family is living on a campsite in the Netherlands because they're big believers in Bitcoin. Here's what's going on. Diddy, his wife, three kids, and their cat sold literally everything they owned. Their house, bikes, furniture, cars, clothes, toys, even their shoes. They traded it all in for Bitcoin, and now they're waiting for the cryptocurrency to really take off. 
It's only been a few months, but they say they don't regret a thing. We just sell it, sell it. What can we lose? We can, yeah, we can lose all the material stuff. Yeah, we can lose uh, all our money. And yeah, we don't have uh, three cars anymore. We don't have a motorcycle anymore. Um, but in the end, I think we as a family will still be happy and, and just enjoying life. And if we have to start over, we will start over again. Or maybe not. That was an excerpt from CNBC reporter Mackenzie Segalos' piece on one family's long-running bet on Bitcoin. That Dutch family of five sold everything they owned, traded the cash for Bitcoin back when it was 900 bucks. And Mackenzie uh, joins us now. Mackenzie, you've been following this story for more than four years now, and it sounds all carefree back at the time. Uh, let's just travel the world. Who cares about the material stuff? But it seems like they care now about protecting it. Right. So back in 2017, I met them when they had just sold their 2,500 square foot house, their toys, their shoes, and they were making this big bet on Bitcoin. And this was back when it, you know, it didn't have the same kind of gravitas that it does now. Like it didn't have the same level of institutional backing or mainstream adoption. And so, I, I mean, what happened was this family of jet setters decided to safeguard their coins because they really believed that Bitcoin was going to make it. And so they started storing it. They started storing it cold on different continents. It, it's a really wild story. Well, um, if if they just kept the amount that they had back then and, and didn't trade it, then it's up about 50x the way I figure. If their cost basis, if they bought it at, at 900 and now it's above uh, 45. So um, why the different methods of storage in different places? I mean, I, I guess they're going to get material again at some point. They're interested in, in protecting it. It seems kind of like a sign of the times, like back four and a half years ago, you know, uh, crypto was a lark, but now it's very serious business. Right. And, and so part of the reason behind that is that they have lived in 40 countries since I first met them. And they say that they want to have easy and fast access to their tokens no matter where they are. So they've got two of these hardware wallets in Asia, two in Europe, one in Australia and one in South America. And, and the reasoning behind that just comes back to safeguarding their coins. As you said, uh, Bitcoin is up something like 50x from their first investment. And so uh, what they've decided to do is just keep it safe. So 74% of their holdings um, in Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin are stored cold, and the rest they keep hot so that they can actively trade and make bets with that uh, remaining crypto balance. I wonder how the cat feels about this. You said the cat also sold all of its stuff. You probably get a lot of really nice catnip and cat trees at this point. Uh, Mackenzie, thanks. You can find Mackenzie's full story on CNBC.com. Carl? All right, John. Uh, shares of Dash losing a little bit of ground this morning, but well off the intraday lows. Uh, actually, we're 10 bucks off the intraday low, back to 187. We're going to talk to the CEO of DoorDash on the other side of this break. Welcome back to Tech Check. Resetting here at the bottom of the hour. I'm Deirdre Boza with Carl Quintanilla and John Fort. DoorDash CEO Tony Hsu is right here with me at the One Market Balcony. That interview in just a moment. But first, let's get a news update from Rahel Solomon. Good morning, Rahel. Good morning, and here's what's happening at this hour. Consumers are feeling a lot less certain about the economy. The University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index plummeting in August to its lowest level in a decade. Consumers' outlook dropped across the board on everything from personal finances to inflation and employment. And the disappointing sentiment figures taking a bout out of early stock gains that 
pushed the S&P and Dow to new record highs. European stocks are continuing to rise. The stock 600 is hitting a new all-time high. The index is also up for its 10th day in a row, the longest streak since 2017. Cruise ship stocks falling after 27 people aboard a Carnival cruise tested positive for COVID. All of them were vaccinated. Those infections were on a ship with about 4,400 passengers and crew members. And shares of Jessica Alba's Honest Company plummeting more than 25% after delivering weak Q2 results. The consumer goods maker reporting weak sales of household products as customers work through stockpiled products. You are now up to date, Deidre. I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. And let's dive more into those DoorDash results. Joining us to break down the quarter, Tony Shu, DoorDash co-founder and CEO. It's great to see you in person. It's Likewise, been a while. Deirdre. <laughs> so let's let's dig right in. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your logistics business? I know that you signed some big partnerships lately, Walmart, Albertsons. You don't break out this business, but tell us how it's contributing to overall revenue and perhaps some color around that. Sure. So DoorDash has always had two aspirations. One is to create the largest local commerce marketplace. I think that's what consumers know us for. Bring everything inside the neighborhood in minutes, not hours or days. We also have an equal, you know, equal effort in trying to build the largest local commerce platform. And a lot of that is really centered on, you know, offering logistics products to merchants that want to build their own on-demand or same-day delivery. So some of the partners that you listed, whether it be Walmart, Albertsons, PetSmart, we recently added, um, they're using DoorDash's logistics, so the software as well as the dashers in our network, to offer on-demand or same-day deliveries through their own digital channels. And so it's a, a massive growth driver for them, and it's a huge driver for DoorDash as well. And do you think that helps to offset some of you know, the softening in restaurant delivery that you might see as the economy reopens? Well, you know, we started the logistics business or the white label, the platform services part of our business really in the second year of our company's life, so six years ago. Um, because it furthers our mission of helping these businesses overcome this digital transformation. So it was less, you know, in response to any sort of business activity, something that we started a very, very long time ago, but it does add to the order density of our business. And when you think about logistics, no density is critical to achieving the highest quality and the lowest cost. Right. And in terms of restaurant delivery and convenience, you guys have really quite quickly grabbed the number one market share position. But can you talk a little bit more about grocery? Um, recently, you held talks reportedly with Instacart for a merger there. Um, how do you win in grocery if you don't do a deal, a massive deal like an Instacart and gain that number one market share in this industry that's becoming or this landscape that's becoming increasingly competitive, as you pointed out last night in the letter? Well, grocery is certainly a very exciting opportunity. I mean, it's one of the biggest markets out there, a trillion dollars in the U.S. alone and larger even globally. But it's at an even earlier inflection point in its life cycle in terms of online penetration. And I think that's because no one has yet figured out the right model in building a product that gives consumers the convenience that is actually requisite you know, for shopping online as opposed to going inside stores. And so DoorDash's entry has really been around starting by solving that middle of the week use case, that top up run where you know, the items that perish the earliest in your fridge or the items that you consume the most often, your milks, your breads, your cereals, that's how we're entering the category. And so far it's resonating tremendously with partners like Albertsons and many others. Right. Huge TAM that even Amazon has been after for some time with some mixed results. Uh, I wonder, though, how you see the landscape and going back to an Instacart, right, which has sort of the dominant position right now. Do you need to do a deal in this space to get ahead? Does that look more difficult now, given LenaCon's FTC and some increased regulatory scrutiny, not just on big tech, but the gig economy? 
Well, look, I, I think when an industry is so early in its life cycle, I mean, that's true even for our core business restaurants, where even as the leading player, we're single digits percentage of that industry. In grocery, no one is more than a percentage. And I think it's very, very early in that category. And I think what that means is that the customer's not yet satisfied with the products in that, in that space. And so what we have to do is really invent new products and services such that we can change those consumer preferences to actually try something online. And so what we're doing, again, our initial foray, is really been offering a product that's built on speed and solving that use case that nobody wants to do anyways. You know, perhaps we're used to going on the weekends to doing some of our errands and therefore picking up our groceries, but we're not interested in, you know, in the middle of the week when we're running out of things and we're trying to figure out how to get the you know rest of the day over with to actually go and fill up you know our grocery baskets that's the use case we're starting with and so I think you know there's just a long runway ahead for invention in the space that's required hey Tony uh, good morning it's John Fort uh, I got to ask you about dash pass strategy uh, you, you said in the quarter that monthly active users and dash pass were up 2x compared to overall and um, you know historically they spend more it seems you have a big incentive to drive that membership now across other tech companies are doing it in different ways maybe with content with partnerships etc what are the different ways that you're trying to drive dash pass a membership and how much are you willing to spend on it well, you know, the, the, the thesis around DoorDash has always been trying to build the best product. And when it comes to anything delivery, it's really been around offering the widest selection, the highest quality of service, and the greatest affordability. And DashPass certainly is a big um, play for us in offering that affordability. So it's an area where we're very excited about, you know, some of the trajectory and the traction that we've achieved so far, but the runway ahead for DashPass is, is, is really um, big. I mean, if you think about some of the other uh, memberships that have been built um, online, I mean, they're in the hundreds of millions. DashPass is you know, just a fraction of that, and we aspire to be the offline membership program that you will care about the most. I'm also curious about, Tony, your approach to drivers. You pointed out in this quarter that uh, you know, DoorDash drivers as a cohort are, are different perhaps from Uber and Lyft drivers. A lot of your drivers don't want people in their cars necessarily. But then at the same time, uh, it's a challenging time for labor. A lot of companies are having to spend to get drivers onto their platform and keep them there. I think you're having to spend to do that too. So how are you going to keep drivers happy and make that an advantage that you have uh, versus the uh, challenge that it seems to be for so many gig economy companies. Yeah, I think I agree with a lot of the statements in your premise, which is, you know, first and foremost, there's a structural advantage that, you know, we have at DoorDash in attracting a lot of these dashers because it's really something that they look for in very small quantities of time. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, the dashers on DoorDash, over 90% of them drive fewer than 10 hours a week. Only, actually, much less than 1% of them drive north of 30 hours a week. So it's a very, very different population that, you know, really represents most of the economy. They're coming to us from every sector and industry, whether they're parents, teachers, entrepreneurs. And it's just very, very different from, you know, any other part-time job out there. And as a result, you know, we haven't really had trouble um, getting dashers onto the platform. In fact, we had a record number of new dashers coming into the second quarter. Over 3 million dashers have dashed um, in that quarter alone. 
and it's just structurally very, very different from others. Now, on the, on the flip side, you're right. Um, there are lots of folks, you know, competing, um, and that's why you see advertising rates growing, which is reflected in some of our um, economics in the second quarter. But at the same time, in terms of getting dashers on the road, it has not been a challenge. Hey, Tony, a bit of a macro question. We did get some uh, consumer sentiment numbers this morning that have uh, sentiment back to uh, 2011 levels. A lot of that is worry about the Delta variant, but some of it is an aversion to higher prices at the consumer level. And I wonder how you're folding that into your models and whether or not uh, it it means you're going to have to accentuate uh, your value proposition to your consumers. Well, at DoorDash, we're always trying to look to offer a greater and greater value in addition to having the widest selection and the highest quality of service. So I certainly echo, I think, any of the sentiments of the consumer. But even if that were not reflected, which frankly hasn't been the case, if you actually look at the economy, I mean, restaurants are now near pre-COVID levels in terms of reservations. In fact, they had their best quarter industry-wide you know, aggregate um, in terms of their total sales, restaurants as an industry. So I think consumers are actually voting with their dollars and wallets that they really actually want to support these restaurants, both dining in as well as ordering takeout, as you've seen the behavior on platforms like DoorDash stick as well. And so while I totally understand the sentiment, I think the actions actually reflect quite a lot of optimism, quite a lot of interest in getting back into normalcy. Um, but at DoorDash, we'll always continue to focus on driving more value for consumers. Tony, this morning we were talking about Disney Plus and how the streaming user may be less valuable in terms of revenue per user, but they really own that relationship. You guys are doing more with Drive. That's your white label product, which has, as I think, as you mentioned, has been a big growth area for you guys, but you don't own that customer relationship. So what are you giving up there? And then also, I wonder if you could give us an update on Dashmart, which is your sort of owned and operated uh, solution and how that is sort of rolling out or how you plan to expand that. Yeah, and the first part of the question, you know, what the drive business really does, you're exactly right. I mean, we have two businesses. We have our marketplace, which is our app, where DoorDash owns the customer. And then we have our platform services business with products like DoorDash Drive, Storefront, and others coming where the merchants own the customer. We fundamentally believe that merchants must own the customer and build their own channel in order for them to be successful. And frankly, in order to have a productive relationship over the long run with DoorDash. I think on the second question with respect to Dashmart, it's something very similar. You know, Dashmart to us is a platform service where we're building, um, you know, these uh, warehouses in which we're giving shelf space to merchants in which we can extend their geography or penetration to existing geographies as well as hours of operation. On the flip side, it also sells on the DoorDash marketplace. How can we view those expansion plans for Dashmart? Well, we're very excited about what we've seen so far. And I mean, if you take a look at our um, entry into the convenience category, it's both mm -hmm. you know, partnering with third parties like 7-Eleven, Walgreens, CVS, and many others, as well as offering you know, um, first-party dash marts. And again, you know, with products that allow that platform you know, um, uh, capability, it really allows us to grow th the greatest reach. Okay, well, looking forward to see uh, what you guys do next. Tony, thank you so much for joining us here Thanks live for having well. me. Talk to you soon. Carl, back over. All right, Dee, that was great. Uh, another earnings mover to watch this morning is ZipRecruiter. A larger loss than expected, but a pretty good beat on revenue. And some upbeat guidance has that stock, uh, well, a little bit higher, but actually lower now, 2.6% after a brief uh, trip to the upside. A lot more tech check is coming straight ahead. Reddit reaching some new records. The social media site hitting a $10 billion valuation in its latest funding round, led by Fidelity. That represents a threefold boost from 2020, the company had doubled its valuation to $6.5 billion back in February on the heels of the Wall Street bets trading frenzy. 
Uh, joining us this morning, uh, live on set here at the NYSC, Reddit co-founder and CEO, Steve Huffman. Steve, welcome. Great to have you on the floor. Thank you. It's Thanks really great to, uh, it's great to see you in person. Yes, for once. Um, congratulations on the valuation and specifically on the money raised. And it, I guess everybody's wondering what you're spending it on. So first, thank you. Um, for us, it's, it's more of the same. Um, first, first order of business is make Reddit awesome. Make Reddit faster, more relevant, help it work for more people. And then we look to the future. So internationalization is a big effort of ours. Video will be another big effort of ours. So just same strategy, just keep moving ahead. I do want to hit on both of those. Talk, talk to me about why, why video is important. You, you talk about enhanced video quite a bit. Is it a people want to make TikTok influence you know, stories out of it? What, what do you see as video? What role does video play? Sure. So if we go back in the past, 15 years ago, Reddit was just links. And then we had a text and images and, and third-party video and our own video. And every time we add a new content type, our users are creative in new ways, and usually in ways that we can't predict. And so we're looking forward here to a, another big evolution of Reddit. And I think there's a version of Reddit that's even better watched than it is read. Of course, text isn't going anywhere either. So I think uh, it'll be an exciting new frontier for us. Huh. And you did, uh, what, when was Dub Smash? Was that uh, last year? That was late last year. Right. And I, I guess this is all pointing in that, in that general direction. Yes, yes. So that team we brought in with the Dub Smash acquisition, a team of video experts, um, a whole new community of users, and of course the team um, and the technology behind all of that. I think John's got some questions. John? Uh, thanks, Carl. Yes, yeah, Steve, what have you learned from GIFs and the meme explosion. I mean, both those things have been around for years and years and years, but with this generation particularly, they've almost become like a content class unto themselves. Uh, I think particularly on Reddit. What are you learning from that and how do you take better advantage of it? Sure, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Reddit, you know, pioneered the meme. Um, and, and as I was saying before, whenever there's a new content type, whether, whether we build it, or in, this case of, in the case of the meme, the users really invented it themselves. What they're also creating is this canvas of creativity. And then they'll take that in directions that we can't predict. But I think that's what makes Reddit really interesting, is that our users do things that we or nobody else would ever actually predict. And I think that's, that's the fun of it. Yeah, and it seems like the best platforms often are able to take that learning from what a user or a group of users are doing and then turbocharge it, either make it easier or, or um, more convenient or even charge for a premium version of it. Are you going to do that? I think you, you pretty much nailed it. Um, the first order of business is make Reddit easier to use, more accessible, more relevant. Um, and then, of course, we're trying to build a great business at the same time and do so in a way that... Uh, you know, hopefully works in harmony with the core product. Good morning, it's Deirdre. When it comes to meme stocks and the Wall Street Bets community, it feels like we're entering sort of a new phase where the likes of Robinhood are encouraging, at least publicly, more long-term, less short-term, quick returns, and they're moving away from gamification. I wonder if you think that Reddit has a similar responsibility, and be that to your users or advertisers, especially as you bring on investors like Fidelity. So our responsibility at Reddit is to, for our users to be able to create community, to find belonging, to come together around their interests and passions. And so whether that's stock trading and Wall Street bets, or 
you know, more longer term trading in our investing, uh, that is, but you know, both are celebrated and both are welcome on Reddit. What about misinformation or disinformation? So what we care about at Reddit a lot is um, the idea of manipulation. And so whether we're talking about uh, users, a clever marketing team, or something bigger and more nefarious, um, people have been trying to game Reddit for a long time, and therefore we've been working to protect Reddit against that for a long time. Now, before it even reaches our scale, or, or rather on our radar at Reddit Inc., um, anybody trying to get the best of Reddit has to go through our communities. And I think this is one of the things that makes Reddit special, is that our communities aren't just forums, they're not just posts. Um, they're people who have been there a while. They, they know the lingo, they know the culture. And so people trying to manipulate Reddit tend to stand out. And so it's our community first, then our user moderators, and then us all working together to, to keep Reddit uh, open and honest. We, we know that th that manipulation uh, and trying to stem it is a high priority for the SEC. Are they coming to you on a regular basis, asking you to comb through data and help them understand the relationship between Wall Street bets and, and activity in a certain stock? We've had conversations, um, but I wouldn't say with regularity. Um, and of course, over time, we hear from uh, different you know, parts of the government if, if they're looking into something. And we do our best to be cooperative, um, of course, you know, we hold them to the same high standards that I think they would hold themselves, make sure all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. All right. Finally, you mentioned inter internationalization. We, we talked about UK and Canada when we were off camera a moment ago, Germany, Western Europe. Uh, I wonder how Reddit feels outside of the United States, and I guess specifically because we're here, whether Wall Street bets will change character overseas if we'll walk in to the office one morning and see LVMH going crazy on a meme basis. Yes, so community is universal. Um, and I think the, the, the fun and the value that people get out of Reddit, that sense of belonging, is universal. But people are different. They're different in the United States and they're different overseas. And so there's a certain element, uh, this kind of theme in this interview, is that we actually don't know how people are going to use Reddit all the time. So will there be a Wall Street Bets overseas? You know, I'm not sure, um, but I think that'd be fun to see. But I know it'll be, it'll be different, whatever it is. It's, it must be interesting to run a business that, uh, to a large degree, is going to surprise even you. I think that's the fun of it. <laughs> Steve, thanks for coming in. It's great to have you in. My pleasure. Uh, great Steve to see Hoffman you. I've read it. Deep. Well, if you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Welcome back. Tech Check is, of course, live on TV, and it lives online. Today, from my Fort Knox digital show, Family Ties, and how upbringing influenced these founders and CEOs. Behind every good founder is a great team, but what about the family support system that helped shape them as young children? In these very candid Fort Knox conversations, four tech CEOs opened up to me about how their upbringing influenced the leaders they are today. Because my mom and dad worked together in all of their businesses, dinner conversations often came to business. So I affectionately call that the dinner table MBA. My father is blind. My mother isn't. They eloped when she was 19. I was born into this set of parents who said that we are going to follow our own path. My parents did nonprofit work, so ended up moving to Kathmandu, Nepal at the age of 11. I was in this classroom where I think every kid pretty much was from a different country. My parents struggled, both Holocaust survivors. I've always had sort of a, I'm a world citizen view, and I think it's really helped me as I've gone international. Love those conversations and learning from those leaders. Scan this code. It'll take you to our website where you can watch the full piece 
uh, and a lot more. D, um, th these digital pieces that we're doing are one of my favorite parts of the job. Same, and that was such a great one, John. We rarely have enough time to hear those kinds of backstories on live TV. So to get it all condensed like that uh, was great. So definitely recommend checking out the full version. Meanwhile, guys, uh, happy Friday. We're seeing markets pretty muted today, but should note that the NASDAQ, Carl, is lower on the week. It has been a bit of an underperformer where tech figures out, while tech figures out where to go from here. Yeah, uh, we did get, of course, uh, record highs on the Dow S&P earlier this morning. But uh, that University of Michigan consumer sentiment study, uh, which we got at 10 a.m., uh, really did show that consumers are worried about either the Delta variant or rising prices. The, uh, the willingness to spend on high-ticket items taking a huge hit. We're going to watch that, obviously, as inflation is a huge story for the markets. As for next week, we're going to get a ton of stuff, guys. Uh, some China eco data. Then we're going to start with the long list of retail earnings, Home Depot, Walmart, Target, Kohl's, and a little bit of tech in there mixed in, Cisco, NVIDIA, along with uh, Estee Lauder and Deere, along with some FOMC minutes. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.